This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. This is the latest episode of The Long War, episode 6 to be precise. If you like your stories in order, make sure to listen to the previous episodes, but if not, and if you've been following us all this time anyway, thanks very much for joining us. For those of you that are just joining us for the very first time, you're super, super welcome, and I'm very, very happy to have you. If you'd like to check out more information about the podcast, please go to wdfpodcast.com. And if you've been listening to this podcast a while and you still haven't visited our wonderful, lovely website, I would also encourage you guys to do that too, because, well, like, honestly, I'm paying for the website space, so you might as well. In other news, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which means we are part of a wonderful group of other podcasts that do wonderful, lovely things, just like When Diplomacy Fails. I would really encourage you guys to check out the Agora Podcast Network and see the other shows that are on there. Maybe some of them will take your fancy in there. For a fact, I know we have American Biography by Tom Daly. We have The History of England by David Crowther. And of course, we have the multiple billion number of projects that both Travis J. Dow and both Royfield Brown are up to. So do go and check those out if you're interested. One last reminder before we get into this, When Diplomacy Fails is supported by its fans and depends upon its fans, or history friends as I like to call them, because you guys are wonderful and special to me in your own way. So with that in mind, I would really encourage you guys to be fit B being visit the blog, E being email, email me, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com, F being Facebook, like the Facebook page, I being iTunes, rate, review, subscribe on the biggest podcatcher in the world, and T being tell someone, tell anyone, tell your friend, tell your enemy, etc. Tell your dog, because dogs are wonderful. So, with all that out of the way, folks, thanks very much for tuning in to the last episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Let's do this. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons all, to episode 6 of The Long War. Last time we took a closer look at the Ottoman-Habsburg rivalry by focusing the microscope on the military side of things. What made the West so fear the Turk? What was the lay of the land just before Vienna came into view? What had the West done right in terms of warfare? And why were the Ottomans somewhat lagging behind? 
Had the decades of conflict in Western Europe actually proved a blessing in disguise? And did the Turk still possess the actual ability to project his power westward, considering the fact that he had so epically failed at the Battle of St. Gotthard in 1664, as we saw last time? You may have noticed that we are taking the scenic route to get to the last siege of Vienna. That's because there's a good bit of quality information available on the period. And as someone who loves setting the scene and learning more about the era along the way, I thought it would be beneficial to us both to dwell on some of the issues before we just jump into the main event. For those of you that have asked me to just get on with the main event and the siege already and give you the glorious charge from Sobieski, I'd ask for your patience. I promise when we do reach that momentous event, our narrative will be all the better for having taken our time and carefully picked over the era. With that in mind, today we're going to look at the Ottoman Empire at war. Specifically, we'll look at the storied history between one Ottoman vassal in particular, the Crimean Tartars, and their Khan, who was technically a brother of the Sultan, but who in reality was bound to him, like so many others. This little investigation is necessary, guys, so that when I start to bring the pieces of the story out to you later on, you'll be able to remember and understand how all those pieces were moved and who was moving them. This should make our story more well-rounded and... Don't worry, I'm aware that we haven't delved into much diplomacy as of yet. In the next episode, we do begin to unpack the dizzying array of agreements, vested interests, and, of course, bloated egos floating around, which made the diplomatic lead-up to the last siege so fascinating, as well as the reluctant actors who lagged behind. Until then, though, let's get down to business. The Tartarian chieftains and their brutally savage followers, leaving nothing for the vultures but the bare bones and, strange to tell, the greedy and ravenous vultures, disclaimed to prey upon the remains left by the Tartars. Old and deformed women they gave for daily sustenance to their cannibals. The young and beautiful they devoured not, but smothered them, shrieking and lamenting under their forced and unnatural ravishments cutting off the breasts of tender virgins to present as dainties to their leaders, they fed themselves upon their bodies. These are the words of the monk Matthew of Paris, who was attempting to describe the events of 1241, where the city of Pest, making up parts of the modern-day city of Budapest, was attacked and destroyed by a horde of horsemen that struck terror and fear into the rest of Europe. This horde had already defeated the combined armies of the Poles, the Hungarians, and the Teutonic Knights, their horses simply outmaneuvered the heavy medieval knights sent against them. The result was the burning and plundering of cities like Kiev on the River Dniester or Pest on the Danube. We know this horde of horses as Mongols, but contemporaries also called them Tartars. They looked similar to those exotic and fearsome steppe people faced by the fringes of the Roman Empire, and in 1241 their display of force was greater than any which had come from that region of the world in living memory. Whether it was Scythians, Huns, Magyars, Mongols or Tartars, the eastern fringes of Europe had long grown used to the fearsome spectacle wrought by the Horde. 
Established by Hachijire in 1449, the Crimean Khanate and their dynasty of Khans were the patrilineal descendants of Toka Timur, 13th son of Yoki and grandson of Genghis Khan through marriage. Timur married one of Genghis Khan's granddaughters. That Mongol link connected the Tartars to their historic past in the Golden Horde, while it also meant the Europeans could deride them the same way as the barbarous, merciless, cultureless Mongolians. Our opening quote, while recounted by Matthew of Paris in the Abbey of St. Albans, far away in mid-13th century England, would retain a level of potency for Europe even in the 1680s. Andrew Wheatcroft, for his part, wrote that, In 1682... No one considered the Tartars other than as Matthew of Paris described them. But who were the Tartars really, and how did they come to be so important not merely to the Ottoman Empire but to the warlike state of affairs in the fractured eastern reaches of Europe? Let's investigate as part of our wider examination of how the Ottoman Empire spurred its considerable troop of vassals onwards into war. On the surface, it would have been difficult to tell. But, as Sultan Mehmed IV's court moved towards Adern, formerly Adrianople, the Ottoman Empire was in fact on a war footing. It was hard to tell that this was in fact the case, because the Sultan seemed more interested in making use of the great hunting reserves which the road through Thrace had to offer, than actually getting down to discussing the upcoming campaign or indeed hurrying all that much at all. Mehmed didn't rush because he had been told in advance of the technicalities. It was late, in autumn 1682. The rains were en route, with an edge of bitterness that suggested snow may well fall on the lower ground soon enough. Indeed, it could be seen in the distance, high up in the Carpathians and atop the mountains, traditionally tipped as the best regions for hunting. Looking at Sultan Mehmed IV, it was hard to believe that this was the longest reigning sultan since Suleiman the Magnificent who had so shattered the old status quo of Europe and catapulted the Ottoman Empire into its 150 years long standoff with the Habsburgs. The staring contest had increased or cooled in its intensity, sometimes the Turk blinked, sometimes the Habsburg blinked. Yet this time it was different. The Sultan was not merely riding to his favourite palace, with all the speed and haste that a 40 year old absolutist could be expected to muster, he was riding to avenge himself and his empire upon the Habsburgs. Twenty years before, while under his reign but under a different Grand Vizier, the Ottomans had been shattered at the Battle of St. Gotthard. Now Mehmed was back to right this wrong. Periodically journeying up and down this procession was a newly installed Grand Vizier, and he happened to be the adopted brother of the man who had so failed his master at St. Gotthard nearly twenty years before. His name was Kara Mustafa Pasha. And it was, for his family and legacy as much as for his sultans, that this great armed host marched towards its destination. It was time to call the vassals to Adern. Not only did Mehmed IV and Kara Mustafa desire the renewed campaign against the Habsburgs, launched in the spring of 1682 but taking absolutely ages to bring to bear thanks to the traditionally slow mobilisation which was the Ottomans' norm, The two men also shared something else in common. Both men, it would be very reasonable to argue, possessed their own deeply ingrained inferiority complexes. In the case of the Grand Vizier, he came from the illustrious Caprulu family, or at least he sort of did. 
He had been adopted first and then married into the family, so that the previous head of the family, Fasil Ahmed Pasha, would have a male heir to pass the Kaprulu name onto. Some historians have supposed that because of his legal, rather than blood links to the Kaprulu family, he was doubly determined to prove himself on the field of battle and in the course of a grand campaign. In a sense, the puzzle is hard to completely solve and we'll never know exactly what went through the mind of Kara Mustafa as he marched alongside his master in autumn 1682. What we do know is that he wanted the campaign because he wished to use it to expunge from his family's record their only defeat in the hands of the enemy, Saint Cathard. Kara Mustafa definitely had a stake in the proceedings then. The true question is how much his master, the Sultan, merely went along with the whole plan or whether it was, in fact, the Sultan himself who was the mastermind. It is probably unlikely that Sultan Mehmed IV was the mastermind behind the resumption of war against the Habsburgs in 1682, or the subsequently massive campaign that followed. This is because, to put it bluntly throughout his life, Mehmed IV could never really be accused of masterminding anything. He was a hunter, a thrill-seeker, a man of pleasure, and a fan of the Cam Royal Gardens only Adirne's palace could provide. This was why he was so pleased to go there. Not only was a grand campaign underway which would erase the shame of past failures, but he would be able, as was customary, to claim all the glory if the campaign succeeded and take none of the blame if anything went wrong. This custom of declaring campaigns to be led by the Sultan was one of the curious PR stunts in the Ottoman Empire, designed to give the impression that all Sultans were the martial superhumans in the form of Suleiman the Magnificent, or, particularly poignant to Mehmed IV, Mehmed the Conqueror. As his namesake, Mehmed II had been Sultan at a time of great Ottoman victory and expansion, beginning his reign with the seizure of Constantinople in 1453, when he was only at the tender age of 21, he would spend most of his life on horseback and would essentially establish the legend of the Sultan as a warrior king with life and death powers, not only over his own subjects but the fates of the constantly changing world. The Sultan spoke and the hordes of humanity moved towards their destination. This was how the system worked. They moved as one under the command of the Sultan and they were bound by contractual obligation and their status as his subjects to obey his whims. These whims, more often than not, revolved around military wartime contributions. A quick rundown of the successful activities undertaken by Mehmed II between 1453 to 81 demonstrates the unrivaled impact the man made, not merely upon the Ottoman Empire, but world history. To summarise, from 1454, the conquest of Serbia began, followed by the Peloponnese in 1458, then Wallachia in 1460, Bosnia in 1463, a successful war with Venice lasted until 1479, and in the meantime, among other great successes, he established Ottoman suzerainty over the Crimean Tartars in 1475. On an interesting side note, it was the Genoese who held rich trading colonies heavily fortified along the Crimean coastline, where the interests of Genoa had been established for over a century. The Crimean Tartars, seeing the Genoese be heavily disrupted with the fall of Constantinople, called in Mehmed to help liberate them from these offences against the Crimean Khan's authority. Taking liberation to another level, Mehmed's forces invaded the Genoese-occupied region of the Crimea, conquered it, and captured the Khan of the Tartars, 
refusing to release him until he pledged allegiance to the Sultan as a vassal. With this act, Mehmed capped off an incredible string of victories and he expanded the empire's influence up to the river Dnieper, dominating the Black Sea trade in the process. There seemed to be no limits to Mehmed's success and when he died in 1481 the Ottoman Empire was unmistakably the most powerful and terrifying entity in Europe. What was more, the armies of the Turk would now be greatly bolstered by its auxiliaries, who were incredibly fearsome in their own right. Axemen from Wallachia, light cavalry from Serbia and the rich timber forests along the Balkans to power the rapidly growing Ottoman fleet, which would come to dominate the Mediterranean. Yet it was from the Tartars that Mehmed acquired the most enduring boon to the Ottoman fortunes, because, like Hannibal harnessing the power of the Numidian cavalry for Carthage, here was the Turk now directly benefiting from the fearsome expertise of the Tartar horsemen. These were the descendants of the same horse archer steppe tribesmen that had raided their way to the Danube in 1241 and so terrified and aggravated Matthew of Paris before settling down into a canate of their own. The periodic and disorganised raids of the Tartars which were so loathed and feared by the Eastern Europeans could now be harnessed for the Ottomans' gain. They could bolster their armies with a pre-trained, pre-existing, previously established corps of flexible and hardy swordsmen. Aside from conquering Constantinople, this act of expanding the empire's reach and acquiring another vassal may well have been the most significant thing that Mehmed the Conqueror did. Because of this act, the Turk was established within a body of men whose reputation for barbarity and military efficiency was matched only by the hatred and fear they could evoke in the people's unfortunate enough to stand in their path. Upon the news of the Horde's approach, villagers stood no chance, and townspeople, if they had no wall, had no choice other than to stand and fight a hopeless battle. Those that had walls could expect to see their populations swell to uncomfortable levels, as the nearly annual flood of refugees into their better defended towns for safety was an accepted fact of life on the eastern fringes of Europe by the 15th century. More often than not, though, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tartars acted and preyed upon regions which had little to no defenses to speak of. And even if said towns were relatively devoid of riches, it was not the physical riches that the Tartars sought, but human cargo. Adding to their fearsome reputation, the Tartars were slave traders to the core. From their bases along the Black Sea, they would lead millions of men, women and children into captivity, as the roads were crowned with the tragic and harrowing sight of distraught individuals on their own personal road of acceptance, as they came to realise that their life in bondage had now begun. They could accept to be traded as close to home as Constantinople, or they could end up further still to the east in the courts of exotic and alien cultures they had never heard of or imagined. It was, of course, a terrible time in human history, but it formed merely one aspect of life on the fringes of European civilization. The toil that the Tartars inflicted on these people only increased the hatred that their European neighbours had for them, while their nomadic culture and Islamic faith also distinguished them from the innocent, honest, pious and gentle Christian peasants that they stole. Building a narrative of absolute loathing and disgust around the Tartars was already complete by the time the Ottoman Empire forced the capitulation of their Khan. By doing so, it was clear that the terrible Turk and the barbaric Tartar were working in tandem, and as a result, the Ottoman soldier became subsumed in the same rhetoric which had once been reserved only for the Tartar steppe horsemen. Once the Ottomans began regularly using the Tartars in their campaigns, they became just as great a malicious evil and blight upon the world as the Tartars by themselves had once been. The only difference now was that because of the Ottoman ability to project their own power, Tartar horsemen were now able to ride far deeper into the civilised parts of Europe than ever before. It was a horrifying prospect that once again the Mongols should reach the bank of the Danube. By so marching with his huge host in autumn 1682, Mehmed IV planned to bring this nightmare to fruition as a part of his play for Vienna. He would fulfil the terrible fears of all good and cultured Europeans. He would unleash the barbaric horde of Tartars upon the parts of Europe that had never seen their faces or heard their evil, shrieking cries. Reaching Adurin just as the snow began to fall in 1682, Mehmed had already begun ordering the vassals into place. A fast galley was on its way through the Black Sea and towards the Crimea. It was time to bring the Tartar nightmare to bear. The Sultan's envoy presented the case to Khan Mehmed Yure of the Crimean Tartars. The relationship between the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire and the Khan of the Crimean Tartars had changed over the years, the result being that the relationship was more that of an honoured relative, still unmistakably tied to the Sultan, than that of a supplicant vassal or regional pasha. The Sultans had a history of being careful with how they treated the Tartars, largely because they so depended upon them for the fear they could inflict, as much as the professionalism they exhibited. It was imperative that the Tartars be part of this campaign against the West, this new rush for Vienna. So with honeyed words did the Sultan invite the Khan, at his own impressive palace at Bakishirei, on Crimea's southern coast, to act alongside the Sultan. This was a mild form of command. Sultan Mehmed IV was seeking, as he put it, assistance for the faith of Islam, as well as for the brotherhood of the Ottoman dynasty. 
brotherhood and notions of a common familial past were especially important to the Tartars and Ottomans alike, as both claimed common ancestry to Genghis Khan, a fact which enabled their European rivals to equate them with the barbarity of the Mongols out of their dynastic heritage if nothing else. Yet the items which accompanied the envoy were surely more persuasive than the traditional appeals to their common past. Within the chest that contained the Sultan's scroll outlining his reasoning for the coming campaign, there was also, carefully wrapped in silk, a jewelled sword, a long fur robe and thousands of gold coins. Surrounding these were the less striking but still considerable parcels which the Khan could use to bribe his own subjects, the so-called quiver price for engaging with the enemy. The message was couched in familiar and cordial language, but there was no question of what the Khan would do next. He would fall in line just like the rest of the Empire's vassals. By doing so, he would fulfil the contract first made by Mehmed II over 200 years before. For his master's sake, it was now time to rally the horsemen, some 80,000 in all, towards their new objective. In a sense, the Crimea defied much of these simple definitions that applied to the other Ottoman vassals. While the Khan marched here with no objections, it hadn't always been this way. The very geography of the Crimea led to the sometimes fractious relationship between the Sultan and the Khan. On the south coast of the Crimea, the Ottomans maintained garrisons in the most profitable port towns. A range of mountains separated this garrisoned region from the more tartarized interior, which was peppered with steep mountains that led ever northwards to the Khan's palace and the steppe lands over which he directly ruled. Up in these mountains the wines and fruit could be harvested, to be traded with the Ottomans or anyone else, while the constant trickle of slaves into the peninsula, escalating to a flood during the raiding season, provided the Tartars with ample produce to sell to their Ottoman masters in the southern port regions. The sheer mountain range and the relative distance of the Khan's court from the occupying Turks meant that the Khan was relatively free to conduct his business with his tribesmen, whom he rallied around by promising them great benefits from raids. The Tartars depended on their Khan to sustain them, and if he could not provide them with the advantageous conditions, either through raids or warfare, then he was eligible to be replaced. Replacing the Khan was a practice also supported and encouraged by the Ottomans, since their relationship had first been formalised with the imprisonment of the Khan and his subsequent supplication in 1475. The Sultan had intervened in Tartar society several times to have troublesome or more independently minded Khans killed or deposed. The relationship, in short, had been built on supplication and threats, but it normally suited both parties to see it continue even through difficult patches. The Sultan's protection meant that an expedition couldn't simply march through the narrow passes into the Crimean Peninsula and ravage the Tartars' homeland, while the Sultan himself plainly relied upon the Tartars for their expertise and proven track record of military organisation and success. But you might be wondering still, what was so great about the Tartars and why did the Sultan go out of his way to maintain a good relationship with them? Well, the Tartars weren't prized because of their solid supply of slaves, or because of their strategically important position on the map of Europe. Everything about the Tartar-Ottoman Accord rested on the Khan's ability to provide the large raiding parties that the Sultan desired, either during wartime or to punish another unruly vassal, perhaps in the Balkans. The Tartars were, as Wheatcroft put it, the irreplaceable concomitant to the Janissaries and household cavalry. 
Tartar horses were hardier, faster and simply better all-round steeds than those fielded by the Ottomans themselves. They were more versatile, they could swim across rivers, they could sustain themselves independently of the main Ottoman army, they wore no armour, rarely even engaged in close quarters combat, and yet they produced some of the most dazzling and terrifying spectacles to the enemies of the Sultan. Specialising in horse archery like their Mongol ancestors, the Tartars could easily loose five arrows on horseback within seconds. So expert were they with this combination that not only did horse archers remain the vogue of the region and an essential part of the Ottoman war strategy in spite of their apparently outdated weaponry and tactics, but they were often simply better overall than their heavier, slower and yet more technologically advanced enemies, and certainly better than the once legendary Ottoman Sipahi cavalry. The Tartars were also full of contradictions. We cannot state enough here how feared and loathed they were, and how their reputations as cannibalistic barbarians that rejoiced in bloodthirsty excesses cast them as the most terrible enemy the West could face. Their penchant for slavery, for cannibalism and for excessive barbarity can be contrasted with the elements of high society seeping into the Tartar way of life. The Cannes Palace, for one, hosted French plays and boasted several high-ranking families determined to exhibit only the best in fashion and wealth. While the dirty riders did the legwork, the richer families and relatives of the Khan seemed to prosper, buying up land and forming valuable merchant contracts with the Sultan. That said, the Khan was the definite leader of his horde on the field, and his own relatives took the lesser positions in the melee, representing the Khan's majesty and thus the Sultan's, where the Khan himself could not be present. In battle, the Tartars dispensed with all sense of wealth and societal ambition. The horsemen attacked like a cloud of angry wasps, encircling and peppering the enemy with arrows relentlessly while failing to actually engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was a classic tactic of the horse archer, and made all the more fearsome because of the Tartar's appearance, which suggested it would be suicidal to attempt to close with the Tartar at all. Tartar society viewed participation in warfare as a means to an end. Raids weren't launched because they were seen as honourable or brave, they were launched because they were a way of life, a chance for the individual to gain plunder and wealth, and for the Khan to provide the wealth for his subjects where their own homeland could not. They are thus comparable to the mercenaries of the European flavour in a way. They were certainly bold, but never reckless and only engaged in the raid or battle when it was clear that they had the upper hand. Normally, it has to be said, their very appearance was enough to significantly dampen an enemy's spirits. The Tartars themselves, it has to be said, did nothing to lessen their beastly reputation or persuade their neighbours that actually they didn't eat people or kill them for pleasure and sport. Naturally, the Sultan and his court appreciated the psychological impact of the Tartars on the battlefield, so they didn't attempt to improve their reputation in the eyes of the world either. The very name of the Tartars comes from the Latin Tartarus, after the deep earth goddess Gaia, who was said to represent the deepest pit of hell. So, yeah, not exactly a great name when you think about it. Renowned for all the wrong reasons in the minds of their immediate neighbours, it is perhaps not surprising that the Tartars were known as the Devils or Hell's Horsemen, as their name implies. As was so often the case with loaded names, what began as an insult came to be owned and utilised by the Tartars and Sultan alike in the world of war and threat. One could expect no mercy or quarter from a horde of peoples named after Hell itself, after all. The Tartars marched with as many as three or four horses apiece, sometimes as far as 60 miles a day. 
they would often divide themselves into parties of 40 or 50 men and scout far ahead of the main horde, whereupon they returned to enlighten their peers on what lay in front of them. Tartar scouts could be surprisingly adept at determining the weak points of the enemy's defences, in finding the shallower places in the river to swim across or in finding the most lucrative settlements to plunder. That said, while on the move, most Tartars used their additional mounts sparingly, and they used them interchangeably so that they would always have a fresh horse to fight upon. The discipline within Tartar ranks was also fiercely enforced, and no mercy could be expected for those horsemen that disobeyed their Khan's strict orders. They were ordered to always strike quickly and retire quickly, never to stand toe-to-toe with an enemy in circumstances that didn't favour their style of warfare, such as in wooded country. In addition, the Tartars were less effective at seizing well-fortified settlements like castles or even fortresses, for example. Their arrows made no impression on the walls, so the countryside was simply pillaged instead. But at the same time, the Ottomans didn't expect these hordes to really capture anything. Their strengths could be found in their obedience, in their discipline and professionalism, not to mention the immense turmoil they could sow behind enemy lines, as large bands of them poured over the border. Yet perhaps the greatest advantage of the Tartar was invisible. The real power of the Horde was psychological, and it was felt deep in the heart of every exposed citizen. That relentless and sickening sense of fear which consumed anyone that learned of their advance. It took between two and four weeks to muster a Tartar Horde. The contract between the Khan and his subjects, much as the contract between the Khan and the Sultan, was simple. Khan princes, who lived in different portions of the Crimea with certain regions boasting better quality of horses, all had to pledge allegiance to the Khan. When it came time to mobilise, the Khan sent out the message, as Khan Mengli Jire had done in 1501, when he reached out to his scattered tribesmen, saying, As God wills, I want to mount my horse and you must all be ready to fight alongside me. There must be one cart for five men, three horses to a man. No man is to stay at home save he is less than fifteen years old. Whoever stays behind is no servant of mine, or of my sons, or of my princes. Rob and kill such a man. It was, as we can see, a simple system. Join me or lose your lands, status and life. But in the hard scrabble world that the Tartars still lived in by 1682, it worked. And for the Sultan it was fortunate that it did, just as his heavier cavalry, his janissaries or his older auxiliaries became less reliable and more outdated, the Tartars' proficiency in staying power made them arguably the most important part of the Ottoman Empire's military arm. Defying their own stereotypes in many ways, the Tartars that appeared to serve alongside the Sultan's armies were the most dependable and disciplined elements of his army, in stark contrast to the other elements of the Sultan's auxiliaries from the Balkans, or even from some of the more independently-minded pashas of the East. It was this partnership between Tartar and Ottoman, between Khan and Sultan, that so improved the Ottoman position and ensured its success and staying power, even as its military machine began to lag behind. In a military contract which effectively lasted 300 years, until the Russian Tsars claimed overlordship over the Tartars, following the latest Russo-Turkish war in the 1770s, the Ottomans and their Tartar vassal, proved a potent and terrifying combination which few powers could beat and which all men, deep in their hearts, were destined to fear. As the Sultan arrived in Adern and settled in once again to his beloved palace gardens, it was the responsibility of Kara Mustafa to ensure that the latest obligation in this incredible contract between Turk and Tartar was fulfilled, with consequences that were to define early modern Europe. 
Next time, we'll examine the other auxiliaries and vassals of the Ottomans. As the Sultan awaits the campaigns beginning the following spring in 1683, and is greeted by the subjects, pashas and vassals of the far-flung Ottoman Empire. In the case of all, a storied history existed, but it was the case of the Hungarian element in particular, that kingdom which the Ottomans had so willingly extinguished 150 years before, that the Sultan and his vizier first felt compelled to act. It is a rich story of opportunism, naivety, arrogance and foolishness, and it will form part of our episode next time when... We begin to take you on the diplomatic tour, not merely of the Ottoman Empire, but the rest of Europe. As all reacted to the Turks' latest ambitious attempt to march west. The only problem was, in the courts of Europe, nobody seemed to know where this massive teeming host of men and materials was to be aimed, or precisely what the Sultan had singled out as his target. The answer would shock and terrify everyone. Thanks for listening then, history friends. My name is Zach. You've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. And I will see you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.